Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. It is good to see you this weekend. Listen, if you are our guest this morning, uh, I am so glad that you are here. My name is Will Taburin. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to have the opportunity to get to know you, uh, to meet you. I'm usually here uh, down front at the end of the services or out in the lobby uh, in between the services. And I'll be out there afterwards and would love just to uh, have you just come up and introduce yourself. I'd love a chance just to uh, say hello and and share a little bit uh, about our church and would certainly encourage you to stop by our first time guest tent. If you haven't had a chance to do that or our next steps area, we'd love to give you a small gift and um, yeah, just share a little bit more about all we feel like God is doing here at Calvary. Hey, can y'all do something with me? Can we just thank God for a couple of things? Can y'all thank God for Chad and the team that led us this morning? You know, when I think I love the language that he used, that man, when we come together on a weekend, on a Sunday morning and we sing together, we're rehearsing what we're gonna do forever and ever. I mean, what an encouraging and challenging thought and how great that is. And so, man, I am super thankful for that. Listen, I wanna share with you too that we are a little less than $14,000 short on our $1 million Lottie Moon Christmas. Lottie Moon, I said it again. Global missions offering, I'm gonna get fired uh, for saying that. Our global missions offering over $986,000 have been given so far, all of which goes to our church planning partners. And here's what I'm gonna keep saying it. Somebody right now wants to write the check for that difference. So I wanna encourage you to do so, don't hold back. If you haven't had a chance to give, I wanna encourage you to do that. Listen, if you have your Bibles this morning, I wanna invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. If you were here last week, you know that we started a series on the second half of Mark's gospel. Last fall, we worked through the first half. And as we did, we watched as Jesus performed miracles and taught with an authority that no one had ever seen or heard before. And as we did, as we listened to him teach, as we heard and saw his miracles, we realized that he is the king over all things, the king with all authority. And so last week we saw from the end of Mark 11 that the rising temperature between the religious leaders and Jesus has now reached a boiling point. Remember that the religious leaders were the cultural elites. They were the best educated. They had massive amounts of political and social and economic power. And seeing Jesus as a threat to their kingdom we realize that they did what we do when there is a threat to our kingdom, and that is they sought to get rid of it. Jesus, we see, was challenging the way things were, and he was turning things upside down for them, helping them to see that the wisdom and the ways of his kingdom very vastly are vastly different than the wisdom and ways of this world. And that's why we say all the time here at the church, And we believe that the gospel changes everything. It changes the way that we see everything. So this morning, we're actually going to back up one chapter and we're gonna be in chapter 10 for the next two weeks following this one. And we come, as you see there in verse one, if you have your Bibles open, to a passage where Jesus is asked a question about marriage and divorce. Now, before I read our text for today, I realize that the very mention of divorce 
puts many of us on edge. For many of you, this has been your experience. You've walked this painful road. You've experienced the deep wounds from the disappointment and the devastation of a broken marriage. I realize that no doubt some of you walk into this room and through these doors this morning and you are carrying an unbelievably heavy burden regarding your marriage and where it is. You're struggling and it maybe even feels to you like today in this very moment that divorce is likely, if not imminent, and feels like perhaps the only way forward, the only way that you're ever gonna experience any joy in this life. Or maybe you're a child who's experienced the difficulty and the confusion of parents or grandparents or friends who have walked through divorce or are divorcing. So I know, I know that for many, Divorce has been and continues to be a very real and painful part of your story. And my prayer this morning has been simple as I've been praying about this message for some time now, knowing that we would come to this passage of scripture. My heart and my desire for us this morning as a church is to do two things. One is that we would hold high the authority of God's word and not shrink back one iota from what the Bible teaches about marriage and what the Bible teaches us about divorce. Over and over again, church family, we see that marriage is God's design and is honorable, the author of Hebrews would say, it's honorable for all men, for all men. And because it is, we can be confident that marriage is both for his glory ultimately and it's for our good. And so we want to hold high the beautiful portrait that the Bible paints regarding marriage. And so we hold this high, and while we faithfully grow in our understanding of what the Bible teaches, we also remind ourselves that we live in a broken world, a world where our marriages at times have been more of a disappointment than they have been a source of joy. At times, at times, leading us to feel alone or isolated or ashamed or afraid. You know, we often talk about our vision here at the church, the vision that we believe God has put before us over the next several years as we strive to grow together. We believe as a part of our vision that we are cultivating a community where no one walks alone where we joyfully bear one another's burdens and we prioritize the needs of others and we point each other to the help and hope that God and God alone can bring. And we hold as one of our core values, one of our core values is belonging where we are recognizing that we're real people with real problems and we're learning to hope in God together. So if this is part of your story, or if you're in the throes of a terribly difficult marriage, I wanna say to you, you're not alone. I heard one pastor that I respect greatly say it this way. He said, we mingle the call to obedience with tears of compassion. We mingle this call to hold high God's word 
with a compassionate and kind heart. And so before I read our text this morning, I realize that in a 35-minute message, I will only scratch the surface of what I know is a very complex and nuanced issue. And so I want to say to you, knowing that, that our staff is here to walk with you. And if there is, I'll say this to you candidly, if there is a complexity beyond which we're capable of helping and, and encouraging you in, we'll strive to help connect you to the right people and to the right resources. And so with that in mind, with our hearts settled, that we long to be a church that holds high this portrait and walks compassionately with people. Let's hear the reading of God's word. In Mark chapter 10, verse one, the scripture says, and he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. She commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together and ask him to speak to us. Father, this is your word. And as we pause virtually every Sunday after the reading of the word to ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate the scriptures to us. Father, I pray that we would come to your word confident that your word is truth and that it's given to us to help us see with extraordinary clarity, God, what it looks like to live in your kingdom. Father, as we come now to a challenging passage, Father, I pray that it would be abundantly clear that the my words would not be a distraction to the people, God, but that your truth would shine forth. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my own heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray, God, that we would have open hearts and open minds to hear the word of the Lord. Father, I pray for Pastor Ryan. I pray for Pastor Samuel. I pray for Pastor Tugay as they lead in our different uh, gatherings this morning across our campuses and in our congregations and for the churches in our community who are faithfully teaching your word. God, we pray for a movement in our city. God, that would only be, um, all the evidence would point to a work and move of, of, of your spirit. And so God, we thank you for that and we pray that you would do it. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, church family, as we consider what Jesus has to say on the issue of marriage and divorce, I think it's really important to understand the context into which the question is being asked by the religious leaders who, as Mark reminds us, are once again trying their very best to trap Jesus. As Jesus teaches, again, as his custom, it says, to do, the Pharisees come up to him and they ask in verse two, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. 
Now, when the Pharisees asked this question, it's good to know that they were wrestling with an interpretation of a phrase that's found in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. I'm gonna put the passage up here on the screen so you can see it. But throughout the Old Testament, we know that the Bible speaks to marriage. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, you see the one place in the Old Testament that talks about varying grounds for divorce. And so these religious leaders were asking a question about a specific phrase found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse one, which says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of of divorce. So if you look on the screen, you see that phrase, because he found some indecency in her, they were wanting to know, what does that really mean? And there were differing views upon what that mean, what that meant. There were some who in that day, in the first century, followed the rabbinical teachings of a man by the name of Shammai, a rabbi who interpreted this idea of some indecency found in here in Deuteronomy 24 to mean some illicit type of marital impropriety that was short of adultery. We know that the scriptures already codified that in the Old Testament, adultery was punishable by death. So this school of thought interpreted some some indecency pretty narrowly. They said it had to be some sexual impropriety. And when that sexual impropriety took place, then you're free to divorce. But then there were those who followed another rabbi by the name of Hillel, who interpreted the term some indecency much more broadly and liberally. He said, basically, some indecency could mean anything that was an offense to the husband. In fact, when you go and you look at other Jewish literature from that time, you realize that it could, they wrote about this and it could have been lots of different things. If she ruined your dinner, if she speaks to him in a tone that he doesn't respect, or if he finds another woman to be more beautiful. I stopped and I started thinking about this. I was like, man, what they're describing here from Hillel is really what we would call in our day, no fault divorce. And it grieved me when I was hearing, it's like, man, who divorced his wife because she can't cook dinner or if she speaks to him in a tone that he doesn't respect. And then I started, as I started thinking about that and thinking about how harsh that was, I then came across this quote and realized how closely this actually aligns with the no-fault divorce of our day. Listen to this. In my study this week, I read, your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. And they close the phrase by saying, it can be a personal triumph. And I thought, well, when I think of what the question these religious leaders are asking, you realize that's not off from the question we ask. And so it's into this heated debate that the Pharisees seek an answer. Now, just a little side note here. I think it's interesting. A lot of scholars believe 
that when the scripture says that they were trying to test him, that they were trying to trap him, what they were really trying to do is to get him to speak about this in the same way that John the Baptist had done it. You remember what happened to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod. And if you remember why he was arrested, it was because he spoke out really aggressively against Herod who had taken his brother Philip's wife to be his own. And he says, man, that's not a valid marriage. He says, you are wrong to do that. And so what does Herod do? Well, Herod has them beheaded. And so a lot of scholars think when they're thinking they're trying to trap him, they're trying to get Jesus to do the same thing so that he can come to the same fate that John the Baptist had come to, right? And so it's into that heated debate that this question is asked and Jesus responds to them in verse three. He says, well, what did Moses command you? So they wanted to know what was lawful. So Jesus takes them back to the law. And they asked, well, what did Moses say? And then they responded with, you see it there in verse four, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate for divorce and to send her away. And so they're putting Jesus to the test, but what we actually see is Jesus setting them up to show them that they're asking the wrong question. They wanna know what legitimate grounds for divorce are and which is common and we ask that same thing. It's the very first question we often ask. We wanna know, okay, well, what's permissible when it comes to divorce? And Jesus says, listen, hold on. He says, it's actually because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. You see, Jesus is pointing out that divorce was never God's desire and it's never commanded of us in scripture. But church family, hear me. God does permit divorce, which we see coming through in Moses' teaching, and we're going to see further here in the scripture, primarily because in that day, it protected women from abandonment, which had devastating consequences. And so by allowing for divorce, and let me say this clearly, because I didn't say it clearly just a second ago, by allowing for divorce in very limited circumstances, which I'm going to talk about, God ensured they could remarry and have their needs met. I love what Mark Strauss said, who's a scholar on the book of Mark. He said, God did not sanction divorce, but it is sometimes necessary because of the human fallenness and for preventing even greater harm. Yet it was never God's intention for marriage. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. In trying to help reframe the question for them, he takes them back to creation. And in doing so, he's showing them and he's showing us how we should answer really hard questions related to sexual ethics. Jesus answers their question, not from reasoning from what Moses had to say, but from taking it from creation's pattern. He's helping us see that we're best off answering ethical questions by looking at the order of creation before sin ever enters the world. In other words, to understand the issues of our sin-stained world, we need to look at a time before sin corrupted everything. So what was God's design for marriage from the very beginning? What does the scripture say? And look with me at how Jesus responds in verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
I don't think it's any surprise to you to hear me say that we can learn so much about sexual ethics from these short verses, right? We learn things like that there are two genders, male and female. And while our culture tells us that gender is a social construct that can be decoupled from our biology, the Bible tells us a different story, that gender is not a social construct and it's rooted in biology. We see that marriage is intended to be between a man and a woman, exclusively heterosexual, God bringing them together in one flesh. And so we see that sexual intimacy is to take place only in the confines of a covenant marriage relationship. But it's not just that we see who marriage is for. In Genesis 2.24, which Jesus quotes here, the Bible says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here from the very beginning, God is instituting marriage. And when we look at this verse carefully, we see two critically important principles that shape God's design for marriage, ensuring that marriage ultimately fulfills everything that God intends for it to be. And those two priorities are this, and I wanna talk about them for just a second. The first is the priority principle. The scripture says in Genesis 2, it's for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. So here we see clearly that the primary, the primary relationship that we are to have in this life, if we are married, is the married relationship. And we see the priority that marriage is to have on our lives. I want you to stop and think about what Jesus is, what the scripture is actually saying here in Genesis 2. When you think about it, and you think about a child growing up, who are the two most influential people in that child's life? Well, in an ideal world, that's their parents, right? It's their mother and their father. Their parents are nurturing and preparing the child for what God has for them in the future, making massive investments and sacrifices. I mean, we talk about this a lot, right? That children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. We're preparing them for the mission of God and that God's given us two gardens in which to raise our family, the home and the church. And we're to plant our children in those gardens and make sacrifices for our children to ensure that they're ready and equipped to live with wisdom in the world today and fulfill all all that God has for them. And so it's the most impactful and important relationship in the child's life. But notice the scriptures teaching us upon marriage, the child leaves his father and mother. So no longer now is the parent-child the dominant relationship, it's the husband-wife. And therein lies the principle that nothing or no one, including our own self-interest, should be more important than the health and the maintenance and the well-being of the marriage relationship. You know, I was, I was thinking about this the other day. As, as we were thinking, Julie and I, I went out on a date and we were talking about like, what, what are we praying God would do in our family, in our life this year? And I was thinking about this, man, we're starting 2024, which marks the 31st year of ministry for me. I was thinking, golly, now I know why I got that double ARP card in the mail, right? But in my experience, walking with couples and spending time talking to couples about challenges that they're facing in their marriage, in most conflicts, I, th I think I could say in every conflict, but I wanna be just, wanna give a little caveat, maybe not every, I just can't think of one. In most conflicts, there's a violation of this principle. Something or someone has become more important than the marriage. And it can be really good things. Sitting with couples and hear one spouse say, my husband or my wife cannot draw boundaries with their work and it feels like their work is a mistress to me. 
to sit down with couples who have children who have done a wonderful job raising their children and have made incredible sacrifices and investments for their children. But 20 years later, they find themselves at the breakfast table looking across the table from one another going, I'm not sure I know who you are anymore. I think about those instances where parents can't cut ties with their kids and they place unrealistic expectations on them as married adults. And so now you have married adults who feel like the other person's parents are more influential than their life, in their life than they are. Or think about almost every instance where someone is unfaithful in their relationship, it's because another person just seems to get them. And they rationalize that away. And doesn't God want me ultimately to be happy? And so I give myself to this. In most instances, there is a violation of this principle. And here's the thing, the longer this principle is violated, the more the dissatisfaction in the marriage intensifies and the likelihood of divorce increases. And so God is helping us see that as we submit ourselves ultimately to him, if we want our marriages to thrive the way he intended, we'll prioritize this relationship above everything else. I can remember when Julie and I would go on dates when our kids were young and our kids were like, we wanna come? I'm like, hard pass, right? <laughs> hard pass because we needed a little break from them. But the other realization was, I just know we're gonna be better parents if we spend time together. Right? And we prioritize that relationship. But it's not just the priority principle that we see. In the second half of the verse, we see what is the permanence principle. The scripture says, it's for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, priority, and hold fast to his wife, permanence, and the two shall become one flesh. When you look at the Hebrew, the words hold fast carry with it the idea of being glued together firmly not being easily pulled apart or separated. So it's entering into this marriage with the reverence and sobriety of knowing I am making a lifelong commitment and recognizing that the person that you stand apart from, across from, down in front of the pastor or the minister, you realize that you're saying to that person, I love you. I love who you are right now in this moment, but I am also committing before God as he establishes this covenant that I am committed to love the future you. Because we realize that in time, and every married couple knows this, that in time, people change. We change physically. The experiences that we have, the mountaintops that we have, the valleys that we walk through, they change us, they shape us. Our convictions at times change. Our perspectives on things at times change. And so we're saying in our marriage, I'm committed to both who you are right now and who you're gonna be in 10 years, in 30 years, and in 50 years. I can remember here, I don't know, it, it jarred me at first. I heard one guy say, he said, man, my wife's been married five to five different guys. I'm like, oh gosh. And he said, and they've all been me, right? <laughs> She's been married to five different guys and they've all been me. And anybody who's been married any length of time goes hearty amen to that, right? Julie would say, stand up, you know, I get it. But that's why Jesus is pushing so hard against the question about what the justifiable grounds of divorce are, because he's saying it's just the wrong one. He says, God has established this, co this covenant. I read during my study this week and thought this was helpful. If all you hear are the reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, it's like learning to fly by practicing your crash landings or training for battle by practicing your retreats. 
Whatever expectations there might be, the main thing is that marriage is supposed to be permanent. And that's why Jesus says here in verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So with these principles in place, God is working to ensure that our purposes, his purposes for marriage are attained. Well, what are those purposes? Well, a lifelong, faithful, intimate relationship with your spouse that if the Lord wills, bears children who become worshipers of God, which was his design to fill the earth and populate it with worshipers of me. And to understand with great clarity, even as that was the original design that our marriages though ultimately bear witness to the world of the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. And I'll come back to that in just a minute. But let me say this. We do live in a broken world. And the ideal vision cast in the garden often feels like wishful thinking for many of us. From Genesis 3 onward, we see how sin negatively impacts everything, including our marriages, leaving us asking the question, how should we move forward when things feel so hopeless? And so what I wanna do for the last few minutes that I have with you is I wanna share with you a few thoughts around divorce that I believe come from the scripture and the wording of which was adopted from something that I read from Kevin DeYoung who wrote this several years ago. So if you're taking notes this morning, I'd encourage you to write these down. First, I wanna say to you that divorce happens because of sin, but it's not always sinful. Divorce happens because of sin, and I think we'd all agree upon that. That brokenness in any relationship is the result of the sinfulness of people, sinfulness of our lives. That seems obvious. Whenever there is conflict, it's because of the sinfulness in our lives, whether that be selfishness or unfaithfulness or anger or any type of sin. That seems obvious. But we'll see in just a second that there are permissible grounds for divorce. And if permissible, then by implication and by reason, Divorce isn't always sinful. I wanna mention this to you because I think the understanding of this shapes how we walk with people, how we care for people, how we listen to people, how we speak the truth in love while seeking to live at peace with people. I was talking with someone just following the first service. I know this is a heavy message but just through tears, they thanked me, but also said, you know, just how hard it is to go through a divorce when you feel like you are being judged by everyone. And that the church doesn't feel at times like a place where I can come and wrestle with these hard things in a safe way. So we see that divorce is always because of sin, but it isn't always sinful. Which leads me to the second thought that I have, and that is divorce is only a last resort and it's never a first response. We can spend a lot of time here and time doesn't permit me to do so, but let me just say kind of categorically that reconciliation is always the goal. I realize full well that God honoring reconciliation requires two people 
two people to humbly repent of whatever they're doing to bring the conflict into the relationship and to do whatever it takes by submitting themselves to the Lord, to trust and to follow in obedience what God has done. And I realize, here's what I know, I realize Sometimes we think of like moving towards one another. It causes two people, if there's gonna be reconciliation, to move towards one another. But listen, when there is a betrayal, when someone's been unfaithful or really treated someone harshly and wrongly, you realize that it takes time for that trust to be built. And that reconciliation doesn't happen often quickly. And sometimes it means that the person who committed the betrayal has to move further towards reconciliation than the one who has been betrayed. And there's lots of patience and grace and trust that is rebuilt and restored over a long period of time. The goal is always to move towards, in the end, God's design towards reconciliation. And let me just say categorically, and this will be one of those thank you, Captain Obvious moments for us all, but the best way to prevent divorce is to invest in your marriage knowing that the only person that you can control is you and you can't force your spouse to reciprocate. You know, you read in Genesis 2 that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, priority, hold fast to his wife, permanence. They shall become one flesh. And then you read in verse 25, and they were naked and they were not ashamed. And it's a picture of how we ought to be mutually looking to the needs of others and placing them above their own, creating a space where our spouse can be fully known and fully loved. It means that we strive to handle conflict well, thinking of others more important than ourselves as we see in Philippians 2, and that we communicate well, letting our words be for building up and not tearing down as we see in Ephesians 4, 29. It means confessing our sin regularly to our spouse and seeking forgiveness. It's being proactive in these ways, remembering the old saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I love how Dr. Chapman challenges every marriage conference that he ever does. He says, listen, maybe this year you ought to read a book together or you ought to go to a marriage conference together. That's why this morning out at our Next Steps area, we've made available for you uh, for purchase, a book by Paul Tripp, which is a rework of his uh, book called What to Expect. And whether you've been married for five months or you're getting married or you've been married for 50 years, this is a great book for you to think about how to apply the gospel to your life. Maybe you need to read a book together to help ensure that you are working towards health in your marriage, understanding that the best way to prevent divorce is to invest in it, to invest deeply in it. Thirdly, a third thought. This is where I think most of us want some real clarity. And so let me slow down here a little bit and say, that divorce is permitted in the scriptures, I believe, but only for two categories of brokenness. It's permitted, but it's limited, and it's never commanded. And it's for two categories of brokenness. The first is sexual immorality. You know, Matthew in his gospel records the exact same account as Mark does in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. And here's what Jesus says towards the end of his teaching there. He says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, I realize that some scholars may differ from me on this point and the application of it. But it seems to me that Jesus allows for divorce in instances where a spouse engages in ongoing, unrepentant sexual immorality. 
The word that Jesus uses here for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which you can begin to hear how we get our English word for pornography. And it's, it's a broader term. And one scholar said it's kind of the junk drawer kind of word that includes all manner of sexual immorality. He wrote, given its range of use, both in scripture and in other ancient texts, it can imply sex before marriage, adultery, incest, and homosexuality. So he's saying, in essence, if there is ongoing, unrepentant, sexual immorality, divorce and remarriage is permissible with the understanding that reconciliation is always the first goal. That's always what we're striving for. Now, some of you might be asking what I think is a really good question. You're asking the question, well, Will, if that's the case, why don't Mark and Luke include the same language? And that is a really good question. And I actually think there's a pretty simple answer. Most believe the reason that Mark doesn't include this exception clause for sexual immorality here in Mark 10 or in Luke's account of it is because they believe it's just assumed. They all agreed that divorce under these circumstances was permissible. And so neither Mark nor Luke felt it necessary to record that as they're writing down as Peter likely is giving Mark this account to include that in what he say. And so we see that the first category of brokenness where divorce seems permissible if reconciliation is not possible is sexual immorality. And the second we find from Paul's teaching, which is abandonment. And we see that clearly in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And to know 1 Corinthians is to know that Jesus is writing, or Paul is writing to a bunch of new Christians. And he's saying to these new Christians, listen, if you're already married and you're a new believer and you have a spouse who doesn't believe, then don't divorce them. Don't separate from them. And one of the reasons he gives them is he says, the reason you shouldn't separate from them is because through your faithfulness to them, you're gonna put on display your trust and your hope in the gospel and they can see that you trust the Lord and your children will benefit from that. And so if they're willing to live with you, then stay committed to them and stay in that relationship. But he goes on to write in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the Christian is not enslaved. And so if you're striving towards health, if you're striving towards vibrancy and your non-believing spouse just walks away and says, man, that's great. I don't want any part of you and I don't want any part of your faith. And they walk away. Then I believe Paul is showing us then the Christian is released from that and free to remarry in that instance. Now, I know what some of you are asking. So we see these two broad categories of sexual immorality and abandonment. And some of you are rightly asking, well, Will, what about instances of abuse physically or emotionally or otherwise? I want you to hear me clearly on this. And this is my perspective on it. And I, again, I would, I would say some would disagree with me on this. And I know that I'll have to give an account to that to the Lord. Um, but I'm gonna, I wanna say this. In an abusive situation, the abuser is creating an unsafe environment for, them, for their spouse. And by creating an unsafe environment, they are in essence forcing them to leave. In that case, listen, as one author said, even though the abused spouse leaves the marriage, the abusive partner is the deserter. You hear that? Even though the abused spouse leaves the marriage, separates from the marriage, which I would say in any instance of abuse, immediately separate, 
to allow for health to be rebuilt and trust to be rebuilt if the Lord would will. The abusive partner is the deserter. And so I would say in those instances to engage the civil authorities legally when appropriate, to engage with the church, to have them walk with you through this, to seek reconciliation, to call the abusing spouse to repentance and to faith. But if there is a pattern of abusive behavior, I believe this person is proving themselves to be an unbeliever by proving themselves to be deserting the marriage and abandoning the vows that they have made to nurture and to cherish, to love and to adore, to love in the way that Christ loves, thus in time freeing the person to divorce and in the end remarry. So I believe that there are two categories of brokenness where divorce is permissible and only two, and those are in the areas of sexual immorality and abandonment according to the scriptures. And the final thing, the final thought I'd want to say on this is that divorce is a cause for lament and God's grace is for you. It's a cause for lament, it's a cause for grieving when we see the effects of brokenness in our world manifest themselves in this way. You know, I was talking with Ryan this week. He said, you know, it's just interesting how our culture right now, one of the more popular things to do is to throw divorce parties, to celebrate them. It's not a time of celebration. It's a time of lament for grieving. But it's also a time to remember that God's grace is for you. I realize that perhaps in hearing me share these limited categories for divorce or grounds for divorce. Perhaps there are some of you who are here and you're wondering or you're thinking to yourself, well, the divorce in my past, perhaps it wasn't on biblical grounds. And I wanna say there is grace for you. You say, well, what should my response be? Well, your response should be what we should do whenever we sin is to ask God for forgiveness and to know that there is no sin so great that the blood of Christ won't cover it. And to the degree possible, to make amends in the relationships, as far as it depends on you, the Bible says, live at peace with people. Maybe you've been in church environments where divorce has been talked about in a way that seems judgmental and makes divorce seem like an unpardonable sin. Let me remind you that I stand here and every person sits here as trophies of God's grace none of us deserving the grace that we have been shown. It's not our faithfulness. It's not our successful marriages or success in our work or healthy children that justifies justifies us before the Lord. It's only because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We are all trophies of his grace here. We have a God, thankfully, who was able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. We have a God of grace of second and third and fourth chances. And so as the song says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. You see, divorce is a cause for great lament and God's grace is for you. I know that some of you are here and like, man, okay, Will, I want a thriving marriage, but I'm not sure where to start. Where's the help come from? Well, in Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he writes, therefore a man 
shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, appealing back to creation. And then he says, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Calvary family, marriage bears witness to the beautiful union between Christ and the church. Jesus is the faithful groom and we, the church, are his bride. And let me remind you that the Bible begins with a marriage in Genesis chapter two and ends with a marriage in Revelation chapter 19. When the groom is there and we, his bride, are adorned in robes of righteousness are there with him. You wanna know how to have a growing and vibrant marriage as far as it it depends on you, fall more in love with Jesus. See Christ for what he has done for you. And it's in seeing his love perfectly displayed for you on the cross, knowing that we are known and loved deeply. We now have the very power we need to love our spouses, to forgive when we're wrong, to think of others more important than us as we look to the way that Christ has loved us. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage said this, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. And that is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. Remind yourself over and over again, man, I am far more sinful than I could ever dare to imagine, but I am far more accepted by Christ than I could ever dare to hope. And when I realize that I'm fully known and loved by him, forgiven by him, been given grace and mercy by him, when that satisfies the deepest longings of my soul, I'm now free to give myself away to my spouse without any expectation of anything in return. And the net effect of that is if two people are doing that together, marriages will thrive and be a beautiful picture to the unbelieving world of Christ's relationship to the church. So with all this in mind, I wanna encourage you with some practical next steps. For those of you who are married, I would say to you, and you look at your marriage and you're, you're here today and you're just kind of thankful that marriage seems to be healthy. I would say to you, well, what steps do you wanna take this week to continue strengthening your marriage? For some of y'all, I just say it pretty bluntly, you need to go on a date. You need to go on a date and for the love of all that is good and holy in the world, don't take your cell phone with you. <laughs> Leave it in the car. Look at each other in the eye and have a conversation. Some of you are like, I'm not sure what we'll talk about. Can I tell you, Julie and I date pretty often, but sometimes I'll just go online and she'll do the same thing and be like, hey, here's 10 questions. Here's 10 fun questions to ask or maybe here's 10 serious questions to ask and just lean into it. Just lean into it and talk with one another. Or maybe it's to start praying together. Or maybe it's to stop and get a copy of this book. And start. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You saw this book when I held it up and you're like, way too thick. I'll never get through it. <laughs> Here's what I would say to you. Even if you just read a chapter every month, just work your way through it every time. It'll be great for you. And then the second thing, for those who are struggling, what step can you take this week to get help? 
I want to say to you that he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He's near to the brokenhearted and he binds their wounds. I want to say maybe your first step is just to bring it to light and come and pray with someone after the service. Maybe it's to talk to your small group leader, your Bible fellowship teacher, or to come to call us and say, hey, Will, hey, Stephen, hey, Nathan, hey, Annie, hey, Chad, hey, Spencer, got a challenge. Will you walk with me through this? Will you walk with me through it? We're here to counsel with you. Seeing a counselor can be an important step to do together. That's why, in part, we started New Salem Counseling last year. And I was talking to Don about this, and he said to me, hey, we're here to help. And if we can't help, if it's not the right fit here, we'll, we'll help make referrals with that. And one last group I want to speak to, for those of you who are going through separation or divorce, I want to say to you, you're not alone. We're here to walk alongside you. Perhaps you should consider maybe going through divorce care which is a group that's just started meeting uh, at the beginning of this month. It's a study of, that you can walk through together to help you think rightly about this and w- bring people in your life who are having some shared experiences in that same space. So as we trust in Christ, let's not waver on the Bible's clear teaching on marriage and divorce. And let's not fail to walk well with one another as we point each other to the help and hope that God provides. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.